0: This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, has the market lost its grip on reality? And investors in a triple leveraged oil ETN got a bit of a surprise this week. This
1: is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. I'm Steve Grocer. Paul Vigne is off, taking a, a day. We're joined in the studio with Eric Holm and Chris Dietrich, and we have a special guest on the phone, Lev Borodovsky. He's our Daily Shot columnist. Um, and I suggest, if you're not getting his email, you really should, especially, I think, given what, what's going on in the markets today. Um, Lev, I wanted to just bring you in right off the bat. Uh, Your email yesterday had, I think, a great uh, headline, and it was, has the stock market lost its grip on reality? Because since the election, it really doesn't seem like stocks can go down.
2: Yeah, it's it's an amazing sort of phenomenon. Reminds me a little bit of the days uh, during the dot-com era when – you know, Harley-Davidson put up a website, and all of a sudden everybody decided, oh, it's a, <laughs> a, it's a, it's a dot-com company. And so valuation, the, the pricing just shot up on, on Harley. This time around, somebody decided, well, you know, when Donald Trump builds the wall, all of a sudden everybody's going to need a Harley to, to drive to, to build the wall. And, and valuations went, you know, people started bidding them up.
3: Everything's a, everything's a Trump stock these days. It seems, That's right? That's
2: right. That's right. People are looking for reasons to to uh, justify bidding bidding up uh, shares.
4: Well, I, I mean, let's talk for a second. I think about what um, what people say is the reason stocks are going higher. And yes, it is Donald Trump, and it's also some pretty good readings on the economy in the last not predating Donald Trump, and obviously he's not even in, in office yet, so he's not driving that. So, so the thinking is that Donald Trump will um and the people that he brings in to, to work with in his cabinet will um will will fuel growth and will uh, cut taxes and and reduce regulation do lots of things that uh that at least in the markets thinking will will really fuel the economy right that's 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 the the reason the stated reason for the rally yeah. right no i mean arguably
0: the economy is in its best place it's been and since maybe the financial crisis, and you 're right deregulation, fiscal stimulus uh, lower taxes lower lower corporate taxes um, has everyone you know drinking the kool aid the you know the question though is. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think with all of those um, sort of things like what form, how much is how big is the fiscal stimulus going to be, what form does the fiscal stimulus take, how deep are the tax cuts going to be, um, is Congress going to make him pay for those tax cuts with you know other things, um, and you know and deregulation, what will actually get through Congress um, in terms of you know deregulation, all those things are sort of unknown, but the market doesn't seem to really be that concerned about that part of it they're buying the rumor right now
3: well lev i yeah. thought i thought just to just to bring you in here i thought you noted uh, a pretty smart interesting chart from one of the wall street banks yesterday that that, that sort of juxtaposed this gap between uncertainty about what policies are actually going to look like versus the you know what the market's pricing in yeah. in terms of in terms of fundamentals like how do how do you sort of what else are you seeing, and, and sort of how do you how do you sort of rationalize these these sort of strange uh, expectations versus you know we, we, things that we have no idea w- whether they're happening or not
2: yeah the policy uncertainty has certainly been one of those uh, indicators that diverge uh, both from dics you know the volatility measures uh, in the stock market but also in in credit where you see credit spreads all of a sudden the contracting uh, w- whereas uncertainty is on the rise um, and uncertainty around uh, monetary policy is is also on the rise and again I don't think the markets are really pricing that in um, I mean this morning I had something on the fact that um, Trump's Federal Reserve is going to look very different from the way it looks now. And most likely it's going to be a much more hawkish Federal Reserve that's going to, you know, jack up rates. And, um, you know, um, stocks are priced to perfection. And you look at, you know, price to EBITDA of 11, that's um, in your record uh, over the last sort of 20 years. Um, we're talking about... You know, these things assume low interest rates, and when interest rates go high, uh, it's going to be increasingly hard to justify these, these valuations.
0: I, I want to get back to like sort of I, one of the things we tend to look at a lot um, is sort of the VIX, and we've been talking about this a lot. But there are two things that you you bring this up, um, but also re- recently the VIX and the S and P five hundred are moving in tandem. I mean, they usually move in opposite directions. Yes, in
1: the that, last two
2: days. Yes.
0: Does that what does that suggest to you?
2: That suggests that there's there's a, a portion of the market. That is getting concerned about these valuations, and they're putting on protection.
0: And then you, you have the other things, that you are know, sort of setting in. You were also talking about the other day that the, the, the VIX curve is uh, futures curve is steepening, which it was suggest, does suggest a little bit of complacency, sort of setting in on the market.
2: Yeah, typically when the VIX curve steepens, it's, what, what that indicates is um, it becomes easy to make money uh, shorting volatility. Right, because you short volatility through other through options or through futures, and it just decays. You know, your your short decays away, uh, and it's an easy sort of carry trade. Um, And when people are complacent and don't feel that there's a any downside, a lot of downside risk, this is what they do: they short volatility, and that's why you have this this nice steep curve. Um, So you know, it's another another indicator of complacency. There are multiple other ones. You know, you go to sort of CNN and look at the fear greed um indicator and that's flashing, you know, greed. It's way way in the greed side. Um, you look at Bulls versus Bears, those surveys all showing, you know, that everybody's bullish. That to me is um, you know, that that's those are risk indicators.
3: You can see it in flows too, and fund flows, I mean it is another interesting one in the past month where you've seen billions and billions just sort of roll into equity, mutual funds, exchange traded funds um, and add a bond. so it, yeah, I mean it, it, it's ama- it, people are people are bulled up on stocks.
4: but the thing yeah, is
2: that, yeah, look at something real simple, like um, yesterday we had retail stocks rally. And home builder stocks rally. And kind of step back and say, "Yeah, okay, I get the tax situation. I get the consumer confidence has improved a lot. But has it has it really improved or is going to improve that much that so all of a sudden Americans are going to go on the shopping spree, start buying a lot of homes, uh, start getting more mortgages, start getting, you know, start buying... Especially with rates going up.
4: Out. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, though? It, As I, you guys are talking... It, uh, you you're right about these these signals that we're getting but the thing is i think some of the lessons that we've learned in the past is that this can go on for a long time and stocks can keep going up for a long time once the the needle moves to greed like it, it it's hard to time this uh, you know so so we we we're, we're, we're oh. sounding a skeptical note but <laughs> it, I, I feel like it should come with a with a big caveat here. Well, I
0: mean, you know, twenty what is it? Twenty years ago, uh, I think it was Alan Greenspan was warning of uh, irrational exuberance, and the stock market proceeded really to climb for four more years. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I it was, did take a break, but you know, yeah. I, I was I looking
4: that. at it something else too. Just before we came up, uh, uh, w- I was looking forward to planning if uh, Dow Jones, the the Dow Jones Industrial Average, is twenty thousand. If it if it does it, but before Christmas, it'll be the fastest. Um, that that the Dow's ever moved a, a thousand points, um, and, and the other time it did it was in 1999 when it took 24 trading sessions. Mm-hmm. Now, the, it it took a long time to to march the next thousand points from 11,000 to 12,000 in that time period. But but the the crash, the dot com crash, didn't come for two years. If I'm making sense, the 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 thousand point climb in 24 days was was in 1999, and the the you know. A lot of stocks kept going up after that,
2: right? It just I mean the housing bubble, right? It was a similar thing. People were noticing uh, frosty housing valuations in two thousand five, two thousand four, right? And it, it took until two two thousand six is when when it peaked. Um, so it's a similar sort of scenario.
0: Although I mean, this is one of the longest bull markets I think we've had, right? Without yeah. having yep. a bear, yep. so. Um, yeah.
2: And- There's no reason for a major correction, but, you know, if you look at, in terms of presidential elections, if you look at the historicals, typically what happens is, after the election, the market rallies, and then after the inauguration, it it starts falling, so... Yeah, you know,
4: watch out in January. And again, I don't know how I ended up being the the bull in this scenario, but <laughs> the the other thing to point out though is that that could drive stocks higher is not a fundamental one per se, but it's just the idea that retail investors have not bought into this rally ever since since the the financial crisis since the market bottomed in 2009 the the participation of retail investors has remained well below historical averages so if you're looking for an argument as to why stocks could go higher it's that if you keep hitting records and setting milestones, it could drag more fall,
0: people in cash off the yeah. sidelines. Although uh, we are the, the, one of the big warning signs and bearish signs has always been when retail investors start piling into the stock market. Sure, but
4: they they no that a you're, lot more could pile in. Yeah, before, you could. And it, yeah. That
0: could keep it running for you know yeah. a, a while longer. Uh, Lev, real quick before we go on to go to a break, I just wanted to um, just get your thoughts on. The strength, and I said real quick, and this is not going to be probably a quick answer in any way, but um, just the strengthening dollar and the yuan and what that could mean for the markets uh, sort of over the next year.
2: Uh, the dollar strength is not great for the stock market, for sure. Um, particularly if it keeps it keeps rallying, uh, simply for two reasons: one is U.S. exporters will struggle; two is any business U.S. companies do abroad, when converted to dollars, will decline. Uh, so, so that that's not not a good trend. I, I, given what the ECB has done uh, yesterday, that is um, that seems to be. The trend, uh, you know, other central banks yeah. remain remain uh, pretty dovish, and, and so with the Fed hiking rates, the dollar has no place to go but up.
0: And, and is there, do you have concerns also about the, the you know sort of the Chinese economy and the Chinese markets with the the flows sort of coming out of there and uh, you know a uh, uh, yuan that's weakening.
2: Uh, it's a, it's a concern because uh, you, you see them trying to plug holes all around. Uh, you know, just what are they, was it yesterday as well when yeah. when they you know they decided to uh, you know basically uh, you know stop flows uh, in the you know for all the capino guys and going out to Macau and uh, yep. taking cash out and, and converting them. They're trying to plug all these holes. I mean, Bitcoin is another one they're trying to plug. But the more they do it, the more Chinese residents want want to move cash out, and that's why you saw uh, the reserves, China's reserves drop pretty pretty precipitously, um, you know, a couple of days ago. So, you know, they're going to be more aggressive when it comes to this, and it, again, we saw an impact on on uh, the gaming shares, right? Who could have expected that China's uh, you know currency policy? impacts u.s gaming share so it could be more of that coming up
0: okay uh thank you very much we're going to take a break right now um and we'll be right back after this
1: rapid expansion we're ready worker shortage we're good anything can change the world of work a celebrity buys the company depends on who it is but relax
3: we've got adp
1: from hr to payroll adp designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything
3: Hey, this is Stephen Pearlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts.
1: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. I'm Steve Grocer. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at wsjpodcast. And become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now, look for us on Google on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Um, I just want to get we're, – we're back, and there was a little bit – this is something that you know, I think Chris gets into. It's a, it's a little bit wonky, um, so we're going to let Chris sort of run with this. But it has to do with uh, triple leverage, oil, ETNs, and delisting.
3: That's right. So, the bit of a bit of a drama that has unfolded in recent weeks in, in sort of this niche world of exchange-traded funds. And what we're really talking about is catnip for day traders. Yeah. That's uh, turbocharged bets on crude oil. So, so Both
4: up and down. You can go either way on that, right?
3: That's right. There's two of these things, and there are similar products out there. Um, people probably have heard of, of leveraged ETFs. Um, what we're talking about here, and this sounds like a like a subtle nuance, but it's actually pretty important, is that the difference here between an exchange-traded fund um, that actually owns stocks and bonds, we have these other cousins of those. They're called exchange-traded notes. Uh, the, d- the difference is big insofar as this is this is uh, basically an agreement between an investor. They buy something on on an exchange. It has a ticker. These in particular are UWTI, DWTI, um, and basically you buy it. it, it it's, it's sort of an agreement that you have with with an issuing bank. In this case, that's Credit Suisse. That they're just gonna they're gonna pay you the return of these oil futures. So, for instance, if if crude oil goes up three uh, percent on a given day, this would go up nine percent. So you could see how, you know around OPEC deals as oil people are trying to play this oil rally it's been massively massively popular the journal published stories earlier this year with grandmothers trading these these ETNs um uh, millenni- millennials they made a t-shirt millennials are making <laughs> millennials will make t-shirts at anything let's be honest but um, so these are these are these sound obscure and it sounds like an alphabet soup but these are wildly popular Trading vehicles. Um, just last week, that you might remember, on Thursday, that was a day that OPEC uh, announced announces production limit. The bullish version of this fund traded 63 million shares, which, for reference, is it's more than all but three stocks in the S and P 500. Wow. So we're talking about serious volume. There's serious, serious money tied up in these two,
4: and and the level of participation from retail investors is very very high as far as we can tell right
3: as far as we can tell right so so it's owned by you know when you look at holding information it's these these market makers and you know retail traders who sort of flip in and out of them so that's the that's the grand setup right we have these popular trades however if if you weren't sort of up to speed on these arcane Changes you might have woken up today and found that these products are no longer listed on the New on the New York Stock Exchange, off exchange, OTC. Um, that's because. Well, what what does that what mean? What does that mean? That's a great question. It means it's it's going to be difficult. It's going to be costly. You can't you can't just go to Yahoo Finance anymore and look at a look at what a quote for the for these things are. And there's hundreds of million dollars that are still tied up in them. Why is that? Great question, Eric. <laughs> That's because the issuing bank last week put last month put out a press release. This is Credit Suisse again, saying that they're going to delist, but not close. That's unusual. It's not so. It's not so rare that that you'll have banks or ETF companies sort of planting and pruning what they have based on supply and demand. These are not being closed. They're just being kicked off exchange, so Credit Suisse can continue to uh, to collect fees on this. But it's just difficult now for people to get out or in. Um, why is that you ask again Eric Holm? <laughs> it's a little bit unclear the because these are because these are um debts it's it's billions of dollars that would be on the book of credit Suisse so you know it for any number of reasons they might want to do something different with you know billions of dollars so but uh, to,
4: to get the drive the point home, if you were not paying attention, you missed this announcement and you didn't see the stories that you so ably did on this and you did not sell your shares by yesterday at the close. You are going to have a very hard time unloading these as far as we know at this point, right?
3: That's right. So you might be able to still trade it. You can call your broker. I saw um, on Twitter I was emailing with a guy who said he got an alert from his broker yesterday. His wife did – I'm sorry. He did not get – an alert that this was happening. His wife did, and they both are are traders in these things. So you, you're going to still be able to trade it. It's it's going to be really hard to know what the price is. You're probably going to get a really wide bid ask spread, meaning that it's really expensive to, to trade in the first place, and the price that you get could be way off from the price of oil. And this is you know it's pretty uh, it's pretty big change for admittedly you know smaller investors, but it, it's a really odd situation in in this little universe. I want to. I wanted to uh,
0: bring Chuck Jaffe in on this because you're gonna. You 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 emailed this morning when we were talking about doing this segment, and you said you're gonna give.
1: Uh, no 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 no. You can't say it. Okay, it's not coming yet.
0: Okay, I won't. I won't spoil it. Oh, big but, but big reveal. It
1: gets much weirder. It gets much weirder. See, here's the thing. They're delisting. So, so what they are delisting? Let's get again, just kind of give like the Velocity shares three times long crude oil ETN. That is ticker symbol UWTI. However, Citigroup announced yesterday that it's going to launch Velocity Shares branded ETNs that are almost the exact same thing. In fact, here's the name. The Velocity Shares three times long crude oil ETN. (laughs) ticker symbol U-W-T that's the same name almost the same ticker it's only the I at the end off of the one that was delisted to the new one and by the way they're doing it on the inverse crude as well in other words you might have the delisted version and be totally skunked or you might have the new listed version but you don't have the same assets there at least yet which in an ETN is an important sort of thing and the other important difference the fee level on the new ones is significantly higher
3: right and that was the other that's a great <laughs> it, this in this saga that was the great twist of of yesterday afternoon is this this press release comes across right before the closing bell announcing that the same company that uh, it, it, you know runs the products that are being delisted oh by the way we have Essentially identical products, just with a with with a different bank. So, quite a quite a shakeup. W- so,
0: why is Citi getting into this at the time that Credit
3: Suisse is getting out of this, or you know, what what's going on here? These are business decisions that nobody talks about publicly. That we don't really have a good sense for why it is. It's clear that pub- that Credit Suisse no longer wants to have billions of dollars that uh, on its balance sheet that are tied to these products, and apparently Citigroup is interested in that. That's sort of all we know. Clearly the, the other the, the issuer, the sponsor rather, Velocity Shares is owned by Janice, you know, is, is trying to put out products that are that are clearly popular. So you know it seemed like you're subbing one for the other, but the way that it was communicated was well, bizarre to say the least.
1: The fact that you didn't have one sponsor company come in and simply take it over. Right. Which is not difficult to do. That a, a transfer is pretty easy in these cases. Now, I will say that it's easier in an ETF. This is an ETN. So there might be some issues there that, truthfully, I haven't looked at. But when it comes to an ETF, if you said, oh, I've got the XYZ ETF, and you want to transfer it so that it it continues on, but with new management, et cetera, that's easy. That's normally pretty much boilerplate, and it doesn't need any big sort of deal. Now, I will say... I don't believe this is nearly as popular from a, from a retail standpoint, that when we're talking about retail investors who are using this, I mean, anytime you're talking about leveraged and inverse leveraged ETFs and ETNs, you are talking about products that, you know, the SEC and FINRA have come out and issued significant investor alerts about saying, don't do this. These are power tools. They are meant to be used by other people. Like a nail gun is really cool until you shoot yourself in the foot. If you are not good at using a nail gun, try a hammer and a nail and do it one at a time. This is a great way to sort of blow your foot off. And I think that while you have retail customers who are affected, they're affected through their advisors. So I also question whether or not there's going to be... Some measure of fallout here about advisors who weren't paying enough attention and wound up getting caught here. Their clients get are the ones who pay the bill, and you know, there's a lot of actionable stuff there, and more argument for why advisors need to be fiduciaries.
3: It's interesting. I mean, there is no way to know. There, there is a lot of buzz. If you, if you go on Twitter and you, you, you know, I've talked to a handful of these people that I was able to track down. I don't know what the numbers are, but there definitely are. And these are sophist, call them like sophisticated retail versus unsophisticated retail. There's there's a lot of people that use these these things that are that are just trying to make money on a, on a, on crude and, and elsewhere. Um, the more sophisticated types probably got a hold of it. I, I found somebody in London who is a former investment banker. He used to work for a number of places in the city in in the city of London. Uses these things. He you know he holds for a couple of days, gets out, gets in and out owned it on Friday when I called him he had he had no idea his brokerage didn't tell him so he, he cut that position last week so i mean it's but just But he d- he hadn't heard high. about it
4: by the time you called him like he, no. it was uh, less than a week from the deadline and and the guy had no idea
3: and we did you know for what it's worth we did call brokerages and some uh some communicated this via email fidelity uh actually and interactive brokers actually blocked people from buying it at least by yesterday so you couldn't actually log into the account and, and buy this thing uh, yesterday in a number of brokerages. Others, you know, do it differently. You're supposed to get a flag. It's just I, I, the brokerages are in an odd position here, too, but it's just a very strange situation um, that sort of unreal uh, uh, un- underscores, like, how these, these subtle differences in structure that you might not be aware of are can cause just total headaches for people that aren't totally aware. I mean, yeah. it's always caveat emptor, but, like, this is a very odd well, one.
0: Well, yeah. How how odd is it? How unusual is this? Has this, you know, a similar thing happened to other ETNs
3: previously? There have been delistings. This is, again, technically they're not closed, but if they are at some point, this was when the press release went out that they were being delisted. These are by far the biggest um, ever so, it's it's an anomaly there that they're big, popular products that are essentially being closed down. So that that's unusual. Um, but they do hap What does happen actually more and more as banks kind of step away from this business is you'll have these um, limitations put on some of the ETNs where the the sort of normal mechanism where the index is in line with the price on exchange can jump quite a lot. There was an oil ETN. In January, that jumped to a fifty percent so-called premium to its NAV, and then promptly collapsed. And there's a third of the market in ETNs actually is are impaired in some way as banks step away. So it's why 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 are banks stepping away?
1: Because a third of the market is impaired. Because at some point there's going to be liability on the hook, and they're not getting paid enough money.
3: Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, ultimately, that's part of it. There are also these sort of living will requirements. Remember, these are debts that people technically could redeem on one day if everyone did it. So so there's um, part of the Dodd-Frank is this so-called living will and capital requirements. So it's a lot of a lot of the different regulatory reasons just make it unprofitable and unsavory. And like you say, I mean, it's not great if, if you have these sort of walking liabilities. So it sort of varies bank to bank, but in general, what we've seen is far fewer new ones. And almost every Wall Street institution stepping away in some form and, and sort of impairing these ETNs, and they're really hard to know about.
1: Well, they are, but then you go the other way. You know, like Morningstar, basically every analyst at Morningstar, if you ask them about an ETN, they will tell you we would never own them. We'll give you a rating on it or we'll tell you whether what have you, but they, don't, they, they just right out of hand say this is not a tool that you want to own
3: it's true but you know i talk to others too there are, there are etns that like the biggest if you want to own mlps in an in an etf the biggest there's a 3.5 billion mlp fund the bank for that one is jp morgan then you talk to institutional guys advisors too and they say like yeah it's got these limitations on it but it's probably fine i like the tax implications i mean there's a lot of reasons you can justify them and they're not all triple levered but it runs the gamut and and there are it's just this other. It's it's wrinkles on top of wrinkles on top of other complexities with these. And you're right, though, that they're not. It really. It just really depends.
0: I mean, but it it does strike me as if banks are pulling away from this, and they're going to increasingly be pulling away from this. If, if that's what you what you're saying, then investors should be careful about you
3: know investing in this because the same scenario could happen to them. Certainly, you just have to be aware, and this is you know true of anything, but for these in particular. You just really have to know that you're in an ETN. I, I've talked to people that aren't um aren't aware of the distinction. Uh, many people, so I think it's this—it's this perpetual issue of education and trying to know what you own. Um, but it is—it is also striking to me that like
0: the, the, when you talk about retail investors, and oftentimes we use retail to you know refer to mom and pop. I mean, mom and pop investors, like the average person who's stocking away money, shouldn't probably be in a triple leveraged.
3: ETNs.
1: <laughs> no, well, again, the SEC and Finra have both right. warned away multiple times.
3: With leverage, and that's another uh, yet another wrinkle on a wrinkle, is because these ETNs aren't aren't so-called 40 act funds. The SEC is is limited in, in, in sort of what they can what they can do for these because they're not technically funds. So, it's very strange.
1: But you have to look at you have to look at everything. I mean, so when we started. But- Stephen was hinting, because over the next couple of weeks, it is my annual Lump of Coal Awards, which go out to <laughs> the bad boys and girls in the mutual fund industry, who, for actions this year, deserve nothing more than lumps of coal in their holiday stockings, and I've done it. This will be the 21st year. Now, last year, there was an ETF that was an MLP ETF, of the Eulerian MLP ETF, and they had an unusual thing in their structure that it's one of the very few issues that's related to mlp that distributes more than the proceeds that it receives in dividends. So, this was a fund that had done worse than it looked, but it managed to pay out enough money to make it look better to investors. So, I kept hearing from people who thought, "Well, it's not that bad. It's doing okay. And look at the payout I'm getting." Yeah, you're you're getting your own money back. You know, it, it was just horrible. And that's the kind of thing that gets buried in structure that Average investors, if they don't understand it or their advisor doesn't understand it, they have no hope.
3: No, I, think that, I mean, that's exactly right. These, these aren't for average investors. I think that's been, you know, they're not... Marketed as such, but th- it's also easy just to you know see something about OPEC oh. and you Google like playing oil in some article. I mean, just people do it.
0: it. I mean, we saw that with the story we ran earlier this year with you know I think it was a mother in Toronto and stuff like that. They were trying to catch you know they they kept reading about you know the oil rally and they wanted to get in on that and this was a way for them to do that. Um, and so you know they do they do end up attracting you know sort of small mom and pop uh, investors.
1: Well, what I'll tell you is this. On my show, if the number of times we get asked about them is out of proportion with the dollars that go into them. In terms of they're not necessarily big funds, but, man, are people intrigued. And so they're always asking for opinions. And we do stuff where we're talking with money managers and advisors and ratings agencies and what have you. And when we're talking about funds and ETFs, We are always being asked about every goofy flavor of whatever. I have a long list of requests from people who I know to be fairly savvy investors, but still, you know, they're they're average investors. They're not pros. And they've read something, they've heard something, and they're going, is this a better thing? And it's like I said, you know, if you have a bunch of nails that you have to put in, yep, a nail gun is really going to help somebody that knows how to use it well. But in my case, I would almost certainly kill my thumbs
0: or take off a foot. Yeah. I would take off a foot. Um, I think that I think that's a good place to leave it. That's a dark
3: place to leave it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, you're on the show. Also, <laughs> how do you take off a foot with a nail gun? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
1: well, you know, <laughs> a lot uh, of
3: questions, more questions than answers here.
1: Gonna gonna leave yourself bleeding. Sort of like actually
3: I'd find a way to get the, you know yeah. a
0: nail stuck in me somehow. <laughs> there you go. Um <laughs> I think we've given our uh, listeners more than they need to know. But uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll be back next week. This is Steve Grosser, with Eric Holm, Chris Dietrich, and Chuck Jaffe.
1: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.
0: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.